0: Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with artist Rachel Sussman about her new book, The Oldest Living Things in the World, about the concept of deep time, and about what it was like to be abandoned without supplies or a phone in Greenland.
1: It was sort of a profound experience of realizing we are almost never completely alone and disconnected, and I wasn't sure what I would do. Here's Debbie Millman. Antarctic
0: Moss. Bristlecone pine, Welwitchia mirabilis, Brain coral, Antarctic beech, sagoli, baobab, Siberian actinobacteria, Quaking aspen, stromatolites. Living examples of all these plant species were around when Jesus of Nazareth walked the earth, and in some cases, millennia before that. For the past 10 years, Rachel Sussman has been on a mission to find and document some of the oldest living plants on the planet. Her new book, The Oldest Living Things in the World, collects her photographs of these venerable organisms, and she's here today to talk about these extraordinary images and their making. Rachel Sussman, welcome to Design
1: Matters. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here.
0: So, Rachel, I understand that when you were a teenager, your dog dug up several vintage Chanel number no. five bottles <laughs> from your backyard. Is that where your love of all things old began? <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, I think no. It would probably have started long before then. It just, that, that is pretty funny. Uh, I do still have that uh, Chanel number no. five bottle sitting in my bathroom, though. And it's a miniature vase, from what I understand. That's true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, What do you find so intriguing about surrounding yourself with a sense of history?
1: Well, I think it's just a way to connect with something that's deeper than our quotidian five minutes from now, five minutes ago experience, and to just get a glimpse of something that's bigger than ourselves. So you grew up in Baltimore, where as a child, I understand you were a
0: gymnast. What did you do? Were you like a Balance beam,
1: trapeze artist. <laughs> I was a gymnast from a very young age. so I competed. I did, really. So, yeah. what did you do? Like, what kinds of? Um, oh, everything: the floor, floor. ball, uh, bars, beam. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I did that till I was about fifteen, and then I retired, but only for about ten years. So in my mid twenties, I picked it back up again, as people usually do. Um, how do you <laughs> pick up gymnastics in your twenties? Like, how and why did you decide to do that? I think I missed it. There's something about the intensity of tumbling and having that kind of control while also flying through the air. It's really thrilling and wonderful. And I think after being in the city for a while, I just wanted to reconnect with that experience. Although what I found was the impact was a little bit hard on my body. So I actually then decided to take up the trapeze because that was a lower impact.
0: Lower impact. Flying through the air is lower impact than running through the
1: air. As long as you don't hit the ground. (laughs) (laughs) So I understand that you were doing static trapeze. What is that? So flying trapeze is the, th- is the thing that most people think of at the circus where you are however many feet in the air, you fly off, let go, catch another uh, set of trapeze. So static trapeze is where you have a single trapeze hanging, and then you do all sorts of tricks on the single trapeze. Um, and I had a partner, so the two of us would be on the same trapeze and would do all sorts of things, holding each other up, flipping around. And uh... It seems like the ultimate in trust. <laughs> yes.
0: That's true. (laughs) Even more of a reason I find it so (laughs) terrifying.
1: So what made you decide to attend the School of Visual Arts? Well, I had started doing photography at a very young age, like maybe seven or eight years old. I was out with my mother's 110 camera taking pictures of trees and thunderstorms. And so that was something that really gripped me early on. And then actually, in high school, I had um, taken all the photography courses, but I hadn't decided at that point that I wanted to go to art school. So I had a little detour down to Southern Maryland, to St. Mary's College, where I quickly had taken all the photography courses available and realized not only that I wanted to go to art school, but I always had known that I wanted to be in New York. And, you know, I applied to several places and SVA just clicked for me. Was your intention to become a professional photographer? No, it never was, actually. So I've always considered photography my art, but not something that I wanted to do in a commercial sense. What
0: were you planning on doing while you were going through your undergraduate? Uh, education?
1: Oh, no, I had no plans. Oh, had no <laughs> no, plans. No, I, uh, it's funny, actually. Trapeze. The, trapeze! Yeah, why not? That's a good career, I right hear. Um, I'd actually, during my time at SPA, in addition to the photography, I took every single philosophy course that was available here. And so I actually had the thought of doing a master's in philosophy. But by the time I got out of undergrad, I was like, thinking that that maybe wasn't the smartest career move. But actually, I was incredibly fortunate that I'd taken a course um, learning Photoshop, of all things. It was very new and important at the time. And um, my instructor happened to work at NBC, at NBC Interactive when it was still an experimental department. And he ended up getting me first an internship, and then I got hired as an associate producer. So I quite accidentally ended up with a career in web and software development. And you worked on Homicide, Life Online. (laughs)
0: Yes. What can you tell us about the production of Homicide, Life Online? (laughs) I'm a little bit
1: addicted to crime television. Oh, good. Okay. Well, the first thing that was just hilarious to me was that my first ever business trip was back to Baltimore. Homicide was actually set in Baltimore and uh, was the original gritty Baltimore crime show. What was so interesting about Homicide, Life Online was this was very innovative at the time. Uh, We had our own cast of actors and our own scripts and storylines, and it was called Homicide, Second Shift. And sometimes we would have our actors would have crossover episodes, so our web actors would appear on the television show, and sometimes the television actors would appear on our web show. I love the crossover shows.
0: (laughs) Now, at that time, I wasn't entirely sure, looking back through my research, whether you were thinking about or going for your MFA at the same time. I know you went on to study at Bard for your MFA and began a practice-based fine arts PhD at Central St. Martin's in London. But then I also know that I think in and out of that same time frame, you're working at March 1st, you're working at Razorfish, you're working at Funny Garbage. seems like you're doing an awful lot of things all at the same time.
1: Yes, it's really (laughs) tiring. (laughs) What happened was after I got out of undergrad and started this web development trajectory. It was, you know, an exciting time in the internet. And as many people did, I jumped around to a number of different companies and was exploring what I wanted to be doing. And in the meantime, I was continuing doing my artwork, but it was difficult to focus on that as well as being sort of upwardly mobile job trajectory, which takes up a lot of time and energy. And I actually can demarcate 9-11 as a sort of important pivotal moment for me, because i had gotten laid off from my last very senior position that week, which happened to be a coincidence. But from there, I ended up taking a cross-country road trip, On my own for about a month. And do you drive by yourself across country? Yeah. For a part of the trip, my brother joined me. Another part of the trip, uh, somebody that I met online, I gave him a ride from Austin to uh, New Orleans. so, (laughs) uh, So I had a little adventure. But for the most part, yeah, it was a solo road trip. And I stayed with friends or friends of friends and crazy hostels and camping. And I feel like that was a really important moment where I reconnected with wanting to make sure that my life was headed in the direction that I wanted to, to connect with the art more and Just having the sense that the web and the sort of client work I was doing just wasn't satisfying that deeply enough for me. In my
0: research, I came across a way that you described that time of your life, and you described it as trying to discern an answer before knowing the question. And I loved that. What gave you this sense at that point to begin to take your photography more seriously?
1: I think it's the benefit of hindsight that I can say that I really used that time or had this moment where I was making a change. I didn't quite know. I mean, nobody knew what was going on around 9-11. It was a sort of scary and just disconcerting time. But I'd always known that I'd wanted to do something with my life that felt meaningful to me. And so the more I was doing brand work in a client setting, it just didn't feel satisfying. So I think, you know, in retrospect, taking that cross-country trip might have been setting the stage for this larger project that I would embark on. Just being able to search and keep my eyes open, you know, I don't think it's something that I consciously decided to do. It's just that part, I think, came naturally.
0: Your remarkable new book, The Oldest Living Things in the World, really began quite by accident, from what I understand. During a trip to Japan, you were apparently torn between a beach trip to Ogasawara. Or a two day hike to Yakushima to see a tree that locals said was seven thousand years old. why did you pick the tree over the beach? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well the beach i was I, I when I went to Japan, I knew I was after some sort of adventure I just didn't know what it might be, and was, what motivated the trip to begin with you know what i'm actually not entirely sure I've some friends who spend Part of the, every summer in Japan, and they were going, and they said, "Would you like to come?" I said, "Of course I would." <laughs> so I guess I had just—I've always found that travel is a wonderful way to open your eyes to things that you just weren't—you didn't even know that you were looking for.
0: After that adventure, it took about a year and a half for the idea of looking for the oldest living things in the world as a project to crystallize. What kept you coming back to the idea of this, of doing this?
1: I had all of this stuff sort of simmering for a long time. I knew I wanted to do an art and science project. I had a few other art and science ideas that just didn't pass muster, that just weren't that interesting to me. And I kept returning to those ideas that I'd read about as an undergrad here at SVA that were sort of turning around as well. And in fact, when I'd made that trip to Japan, and actually still do make photographs that deal with the relationship between humanity and nature and incorporate some of that philosophical thinking, but it's not so literal. I mean, I can't assume that Everybody will connect with a particular philosophical theory by looking at a landscape. But all of these ideas were churning around in there. And it was a matter of sort of trusting that somehow it was going to come together. And so much of that had to do with continuing to follow these threads, but also talking to people. And the idea came as I was sharing the story of this really transformative experience I'd had in Japan, where I'd almost gone home, not only had I not gone to Ogosawara, where I was actually just going to look for some very intriguing sea salt. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you it, ended up getting as well. I, which I did get, that's true. <laughs> yes. Um, but having these moments of almost crisis where I had to make a decision or really take stock as to what was going on internally in this foreign place where I don't speak the language and making a choice. By choosing to go on this adventure to visit this supposedly 7,000-year-old tree, it ended up being one of the most rewarding experiences I've ever had. And life-changing. And, and absolutely life-changing. So it was in sharing that story, though, that year, year and a half later, that that's where the idea crystallized, that moment of trying to convey to some friends of mine just how transformative that had been. It's one thing when you know that you want to do something and
0: then you go and do it and then you see sort of the aftermath that occurs. It's quite another thing when you're actually not sure if you should do something and you can sort of remember being in that space of should I or shouldn't I? And then when you eventually do, how everything could change. It's such a remarkable phenomenon.
1: I think fear is a tremendous driving factor to this. Should I or shouldn't I? Like, am I going to miss out? You know, what good would it do to go home instead of going on this adventure For me, that process involved giving myself permission to go home, that it's okay. I don't have to. I don't have to prove anything. And as soon as I did that, I went the opposite direction. (laughs) (laughs) So you said that you decided to photograph things that
0: are 2,000 years and older. You write about how when life first began on our planet, there were no continents, nor was there enough oxygen for us to have been able to breathe comfortably, for humans to be able to breathe comfortably. It was the stromatolites, a unique combination of living biologic matter and geologic non-living sediments that are credited with oxygenating our atmosphere via photosynthesis, which set the stage for all life to come. And that is what you photographed. What was it like knowing that you were photographing some of the building blocks of our very existence?
1: That was one of the most profound experiences I've had in visiting these old organisms. I think it's so hard to connect with deep time. And when you connect with something that's here living now still, that was part of the actual fabrication of our atmosphere that allowed life to develop as it has. There's something just incredibly profound about that. I just saw it as this tremendous opportunity as well to tell this story. It's the living history of the deepest of deep histories of our planet.
0: You've said that your practice has been contextualized by the multidisciplinary inquiries of Matthew Ritchie and the new conceptualism of Taryn Simon and Trevor Paglin. In what way?
1: It's an interesting challenge um, making photographs of nature. And I sort of start from there and was looking at how can you make images of these organisms that you could think of as nature photography, which I don't mean in a disparaging sense, but just that that's a little bit too limited of a way to think about it. Taryn Simon, for instance, um, her fantastic project, The American Index of the Hidden and Unfamiliar, she does quite a lot of research and then is making photographs after she gains access to these things that are sort of around us and part of the fabric that make up our lives and yet are things that we might not be aware of. So the conceptual layering of that was really significant. And you wouldn't just say, oh, this is a documentary project. It's something bigger than that and requires these different viewpoints of different disciplines. And likewise, uh, Trevor Paglin, I would say, the Last Pictures project, where he sent 100 photographs up into space, and that's layered and wonderful and is about the deepest of deep time, conceptually, certainly about, you know, will the satellite orbiting the Earth exist long past human life? You've said that you approach your subjects all of the
0: subjects in The Oldest Living Things in the World as individuals that you are making portraits of in order to facilitate an anthropomorphic connection to a deep time scale otherwise too physiologically challenging for us to be able to internalize. Can you elaborate on that? Why,
1: why approach
0: your subjects as individuals and why anthropomorphize them?
1: In order for us to connect with deep time, it's important to think of these organisms as individuals. We think of ourselves. We certainly are all individuals. These organisms then serve as a gateway into experiencing a time scale outside of ourselves. It's really hard for us to internalize these numbers that are outside of the way our bodies function. Very rarely would a human live beyond 100 years. So to think about something that's 2,000 years old, let alone 10,000 or half a million, it's so abstract. And so by attempting to make portraits of these organisms, I'm trying to forge a connection that allows some entry point that our personal experience can relate to the personal experience of these organisms. Deep time sort of puts patience in a whole
0: new perspective.
1: Absolutely,
0: yes. Now, what do you mean when you say deep time? Do you mean Big Bang, the beginning of time?
1: Deep time is incredibly layered. So if we think of geologic time, um, looking at strata of how on the side of an exposed mountainside, for instance, you can actually see the history of the Earth. And it's hard to connect to when we're so focused on five minutes ago, five minutes from now. Uh, another 440 thing... characters. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Precisely. But I like to think of deep time as sort of like deep water. It's actually really difficult to stay in it. You know, you keep Wanting to come back to the surface. You know, we're constantly bombarded with whether it's Twitter or I'm hungry or I'm tired. And these are all physiologically, I mean, Twitter might not be a physiological imperative, but <laughs> the other ones. Um, but by looking at these organisms that have this connection to that deeper time scale, it's just a way to sort of dip in and get a slightly different viewpoint. One of the
0: Phenomena that really fascinates me, and it's embedded in sort of every part of the oldest living things in the world, is the notion of mind-independent reality. That was one of the most interesting aspects of the book, the idea that reality, our reality, is very much a context that we've created for ourselves to be able to understand our specific place in the world. All of our language, all of our vocabulary around consciousness is very narcissistic. It's very nihilistic in a lot of ways as well. And I couldn't help but wonder, and I've been wondering this actually for quite a long time, do you think that any of these organisms have a consciousness?
1: It's hard to answer that. I mean, no, I don't literally think that they have a consciousness. But at the same time, I think there is a sort of world spirit, which I say to you as an atheist, but you know, nature is a system and these organisms are part of that. And I think there is a strong will to live. And again, these are all terms that we just impose upon these things. Exactly.
0: Um, what is the oldest continuously living thing in the world right now?
1: The oldest continuously living organism that we know about is the Siberian actinobacteria and this is something that lives in the permafrost in Siberia it is between 400,000 and 600,000 years old. So the Siberian actinobacteria is living in the permafrost. Yes, and what's so remarkable about this discovery is you know we hear all the time about bacteria that was frozen under a lake somewhere in Antarctica and we're able to revive it but something very different is going on with the actinobacteria. So it's actually been alive and doing DNA repair below freezing. So this was an incredibly important distinction and an important discovery that was made by some planetary scientists who were looking for clues to life on other planets by visiting one of the harshest areas on Earth. Now, what happens if the permafrost melts? Well, that's the pressing question, and that's really something that we have to look at across the board for all of these organisms, what effect is climate change going to have on all of these organisms? It might actually not affect this particular bacteria negatively, but the scary thing about the permafrost melting is we just don't know what was contained in there that can now come out. In the introduction to your book, there's a
0: quote that really... um sort of disturbed me, (laughs) and it says that modern society essentially operates without a sense of the past. The standard method of solving problems doesn't consider the past. Yet in terms of human beings and society, the past is not irrelevant. So, Rachel, what do you think some of the most important things are that we can learn from our deep past?
1: I think on the most basic of levels, the most important thing we can do is embrace long-term thinking. Almost any problem you can imagine will take some value out of looking backwards to things that have happened in the past and projecting forward. Think of any problem in the world today, whether it's personal or on a more global societal level, and embracing long-term thinking can only help I've been
0: watching and sort of obsessed with Neil deGrasse Tyson's uh, new version of the cosmos. And in several of the episodes, he's talked about deep time and how if we were to map deep time in a year, in an actual year on Earth, we would only show up in like halfway through the last day of the month of December of this year. And it seems almost indescribable that we could be doing this much damage on the last day of the last month of the year of deep
1: time. It's absolutely devastating. And it it's almost unfathomable. It is. It, truly. And I think that has to do with... We
0: can't even live that long.
1: And we've no, done so much damage. Absolutely. And that's back to my point about embracing long-term thinking. All of this damage has been done because of narrow short-term thinking. Gains today that end up creating enormous destruction tomorrow. And that narrow thinking is what's gotten us into this mess. And it is the 11th hour now, but I don't think it's too late. But it is certainly time to act. I want to talk about the pando.
0: The pando is quite extraordinary. It looks like a forest but it's actually a single tree. It's a clonal colony of quaking aspen. It comprises a massive root system, and each tree, all 47,000 of them, is a stem coming up from that single system, making it one giant, genetically identical, 106-acre individual Quaking aspen have very wide distribution across North America, but this root suckering or self propagation is actually not at all uncommon. It's just that the Pando has been doing it the longest.
1: Yeah, Pando was really wonderful to visit. I mean, I visited the clonal colony of Pando very early in the project, so it was around 2006, and I had just started learning about clonal organisms at the time. So it really blew my mind that this was— So clonal
0: organisms just reproduce by themselves and reproduce in exact duplicate of themselves.
1: Exactly. So it means that there's no new outside genetic material being introduced. And in theory, this means they could be immortal, which is certainly tantalizing and fun to think about, although it also is constrained by the conditions that it lives in. So as long as favorable conditions persist, it can continue to send up these new shoots, which are new trees that are part of that same root system.
0: You visited the 2,000-year-old brain coral reefs of Tobago after earning your scuba certification in a Manhattan swimming pool. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I started in the swimming pool, and it was freezing. It was actually very uncomfortable. And I got the open water certification in Tobago while learning to photograph underwater, which was maybe a few too many things happening at once.
0: Now, I understand that a number of different excursions that you went on, expeditions, you were really scared. There were a number of things that you put yourself in danger. In one case, were abandoned by your team and were alone, completely alone for eight hours, not knowing if you'd ever be found. You hurt yourself, <laughs> you broke your wrist, you were bitten
1: by coral. Is that how it is? Oh, stung, stung yeah, by, stung coral, by coral, and the
0: coral ended up living in your body. Talk about some of these physical experiences,
1: <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of challenges, certainly. You know, just learning to scuba dive was a personal challenge for me. I had a bit of a fear of deep water, and it was certainly not something I ever would have done um just for fun uh, <laughs> 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 yeah. um and then, yeah, you just sort of end up with these bumps in the road along the way. So getting stung by this um, fire coral in Tobago was embedded in my knee for the better part of half a year, I'd say, after having a strong allergic reaction. But what do you do? You just go to the doctor and you live with it. (laughs) So do you have a sort of chromosomal partner now? (laughs) I think we've grown apart.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then talk about what happened when you were abandoned by the team. I think it was inadvertent. I don't think it was intentional.
1: (laughs) it, It was not intentional. That was in Greenland. This was one of the most remote places I'd ever been. And certainly even later, having gone to Antarctica, I was always on a ship. I was around people. But this was a different kind of expedition. I'd been working with an evolutionary biologist in a town in southern Greenland called Quakertok, And he had to leave to go to Singapore, of all places. And I was supposed to meet up with this team of archaeologists who were an hour's boat ride away. And I'd gotten this message that they couldn't pick me up. But the message said, oh, come anyway, figure out a way to come, you know, get dropped off at the yellow house. <laughs> like, okay, you know, why not? I figured I can trust that this is going to work out. And I, in retrospect, realized I was a little naive about these things. They had all of the supplies. They had all the food. They had the satellite phone. So I was going unprepared, basically, into the wilderness. And? I got to the little yellow house and nobody was there. There wasn't a note, and I didn't know if they knew I was there, if they knew I was coming, or when they would be back.
0: Did you envision various scenarios of potential outcomes?
1: <laughs> I did. I mean, I I like to refer to it as my 127 hours moment, <laughs> which thankfully only lasted eight hours or so, but I was genuinely nervous at the very least. Yeah, I would have to say it was sort of a profound experience of realizing we are almost never completely alone and disconnected, and I wasn't sure what I would do. I envisioned, at the very least, you know, strapping on the backpack and heading out until I found someone, and which eventually is what happened. And it's interesting
0: because you write about how a lone organism separated from all others of its kind is quite a rare thing. You also write about how extreme longevity can lull us into a false sense of permanence and how we fall into a quotidian reality devoid of long-term thinking, certain that things which have been here forever will remain unchanging. And I think one of the best examples of that is the tragic story of the Senator Cypress tree. Can you share that story with us?
1: Yeah. So the senator tree was a bald cypress tree living in Orlando, just outside of Orlando. And this was the original tourist attraction before Disney, or I'd like to say BD.
0: (laughs) (laughs) BD. BD, before Disney.
1: Um, And this tree was 3,500 years old. I first visited it back in 2007. And, you know, I just returned from this really long trip to Africa. And, you know, it was easy. I just sort of flew down to Orlando and... Hopped in my friend's minivan and <laughs> photographed this tree. And I later felt like I didn't love the photographs that I'd made. And I thought, well, I can just come back anytime. It couldn't be easier. But five years later, that tree was dead. What happened was some kids snuck into the park at night and they decided to do some meth inside the hollowed out trunk of this tree. And they methamphetamine, the drug. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We know this because they then later posted about it on Facebook. And so what ended
0: up happening? Did they burn down with the tree? Did the, the
1: Did they burn down <laughs> the tree? The, the, they survived. Right. Yeah, they, they, put survived it on to, they survived to to post it on social media. But I do believe at least one of them was charged. I don't know if it was with arson, but so the tree did burn down, but the thing that prevented it from being saved was nobody knew it was on fire till I think after a week because it was burning from the inside out and by the time they recognized it it was too late. So I returned to the site and visited the charred remains. charred remains. Oh. Uh, it was very it was very painful to see it, but there was a little glimmer of hope And that was that scientists had actually taken some clones of the tree and planted them on another site. And then they transplanted one of those back to the original site of the senator tree.
0: And so how old is it? Is it one of the oldest trees in the world? Is it 3,500
1: years plus five or – just yeah, five. That's open to interpretation. So the sapling was around fifteen years old, I believe, and uh, but it's genetically the same organism as the thirty five hundred year old tree. So
0: I know that you often get asked if there are any animals in your project, and, and I actually read that you were even asked why the pyramids weren't included. <laughs> um, and, and your answer, aside from the coral, is that there are no animals. What are the oldest living animals on the planet?
1: Well, there's actually a few subjects that I would love to include that are over 2,000 years old, but since I don't have a submarine, I haven't been able to visit them. So that's, uh, again, some corals, and then there's this really fascinating thing. It's a sponge. It's called a barrel sponge that uh, lives off the McMurdo shelf in Antarctica, and that could be as old as 15,000 years Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, so I hope you get to see it. I do, too. Yeah, but there's a lot of other animals. I mean, we certainly animals capture our imaginations in a wonderful way. And so, you know, there's some old tortoises. Certainly, I think the oldest got to be around 225, if I remember correctly. And there was also a um, giant clam, I believe. That, <laughs> yes. The poor clam. This is a really, a tragic tale. I think somebody should write an opera about this, the tragic death of this clam. Um, but it was found in the North Atlantic, and it was killed in the lab while they were determining how old it was, oh. which is a tragic tale, tragic end to the tale. So it was thought to be 405 years old, although recent research shows that it was actually even older than that. Wow. And did it have any siblings? Or? <laughs> I don't know. You almost have to hope they don't find them.
0: Yeah, it's true. It's true. So given the state of the Earth now and what we're doing Do you think that these organisms that have been able to weather, no pun intended, so much time, do you think that most of these ancient wonders will be able to survive?
1: I think that the change that's happening in our climate now is happening so quickly, there's very little chance of them being able to adapt. And this is different for different species, different types of organisms are going to be more sensitive to changes than others or live in ecosystems that are very narrow but happen to support the way they happen to grow and live. You know, one example is um, the Palmer's Oak in Riverside, California, and the researcher who I talked to about that, it's a 13,000-year-old clonal shrub living in Southern California, and he's like, you know, just imagine mastodons walking around Southern California, maybe even grazing the leaves of the shrub. But it's a relic of an ecosystem that no longer exists. And it just happened to find perch in a little niche that works for it. But if the climate changes even more, if it gets even drier, even hotter, it certainly could perish. And this is a threat for all of these organisms and symbolically really represents the threat to everything. Rachel, you stated
0: that the photos that you take, you would like for us to be able to consider or reconsider our place in the grand scheme of things. But I know your interests are also otherworldly. I read an interview with you wherein you stated that you remember being nine years old, looking at a map of the solar system, and recognized at that moment that our lives are just drops in a bucket. Any plans to investigate anything outside the realm of planet Earth?
1: <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Yes, I, in spending so much time, no pun intended, dealing in deep time, I realized that I want to look even deeper and further, not in just into deep time, but also into deep space. So it's a really exciting moment right now because I'm just starting again with exploring some new ideas and I'm going to be spending some time at NASA, JPL, and SpaceX to start looking at perception and where philosophy and astrophysics start to slip. So based on everything that you've seen and the remarkable
0: organisms that you've captured for us all to be able to learn about, do you think that there is life elsewhere? Yes,
1: I do. I do. I don't, think it's, <laughs> I don't think it's little green men. But for one thing, there's so, we know so little about the origins of life on our planet. But it's quite possible that it piggybacked in on a meteorite and crashed down on the beach, maybe where those stromatolites were living. There's a meteor impact site just over the ridge of the beach there. Perhaps life on Earth didn't start on Earth. Rachel, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today.
0: Rachel Sussman's new book is The Oldest Living Things in the World. It's remarkable, and it's published by the University of Chicago Press. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City.